You're listening to Manx Radio, and I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to the podcast of the Manx Sky at Night with Howard Parkin. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And our familiar theme tells us that it is once again time to welcome Howard Parkin in the studio as we take a look at the Manx skies that we can look forward to in the month of December. Faster my, Howard. Faster my, Judith. It's great to be here again. Well, you are always welcome in the studio, Howard. And on this, the final Sunday in the month of November, we're well into our dark skies now. The clocks went back. Absolutely. So the the sky's much darker now, which makes you very happy, doesn't it? It makes the sky darker, but it also brings into view the magnificent constellations and stars of the winter months. Now, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine went on holiday and he was in Tenerife, I think it was. And uh, he said to me, he was looking out one night, beautiful weather, very, very warm, 38 degrees, I think they got, it's far too hot. And he said, at night time, there were no stars. And he was incredulous, there were no stars. He couldn't see any stars at all. He was not particularly, obviously, lots of lights around, but no stars, even bright stars. And it got to me, got me thinking, and I thought, well, why was that? Now, he would have seen Jupiter if he'd found it, or could have seen it, because Jupiter's bright enough. But in the autumn, we have a lot of very faint stars. Everyone knows their own birth sign, the constellations of the zodiac. And Pisces, for instance, is the fifth dimmest sign of the zodiac in the sky. You won't see the stars of Pisces unless you're in a very dark location and there's no moon around. And Pisces and Pegasus and Andromeda, all these constellations dominate the autumn. But they're all faint stars. So you've got a lot of heat, a lot of heat haze, maybe water vapour in the atmosphere. You just won't see them. It's not particularly because of light pollution. It's not particularly because of any other circumstance. But then, wow, the difference. And I've done this with my night school class. You go up stargazing and I say, right, don't look over there to the eastern horizon. Look over there to the south and the western horizon. What do you see? Well, there's not many stars, is there? And there is, but they're all faint. And after your eyes get tuned to the, oh, there's a faint one there and there's a faint few there. Da, da, da. I say, right, now, turn around 90 degrees and you get... Wow, where they all come from, and that's because we've got. And I've talked about the the, the famous um, the famous eleven um, bright stars of winter. We have got so many bright stars in winter. I could name them all. I won't bore the listeners when going through all the different names of them. But the constellations of Taurus, Gemini, Canis Major, and Orion. Between them, I've got eleven of the brightest thirty stars in the whole sky. And they contrast between looking any other time of the year to looking at the stars of winter, which are all rising in the western or eastern horizon from about mid-November onwards uh, at a 9, 10 o'clock at night when most people look at the stars, is truly dramatic. And I want listeners to do that. So go outside. Don't look. Avoid the temptation of looking towards the east where all these bright stars are. Or maybe have a quick glimpse. But just focus your mind for a minute on the southwestern sky. And you'll see nothing. You might pick out Saturn, which is the only bright object in that part of the sky. And Saturn is a lot fainter than Jupiter, for instance. But that's the only bright object in that part of the sky. There are a few other stars. There's stars overhead called the Summer Triangle and things like that. But the main seasonal stars, we call them, of autumn are faint. 
whereas the stars of winter are dramatically brighter. And it's a true um, contrast. And I, I love doing that with people. Sometimes if I can get it right and not let them look towards the, you know, go around a building and then all of a sudden look at them, and it makes such a difference. And people think, oh, that's because it's winter. Yes, it is in the Northern Hemisphere, but in the Southern Hemisphere, they get the winter stars we get in their summer. So they don't see them for as long as us. We get the wonderful stars of winter, the bright stars I've just mentioned in the various constellations, in the winter months when it's cold and it's dark and it's icy and you've got no water vapour and you've got no heat hazes or anything like that. So they come out in all the glory. And the one that everyone recognises and knows is the very bright star Sirius at the bottom, the brightest star in the sky after the sun, of course. Um, Sirius twinkles like mad because it's so low down, it passing the light of it is passing through a thick layer of the Earth's atmosphere, which is why it twinkles. Incidentally, Sirius twinkles, all the stars twinkle, but I defy anyone to see Jupiter twinkling. Planets don't twinkle, stars do. And if someone says they've seen Jupiter twinkling, well, they've had too much to drink. <laughs> or it's perhaps not Jupiter. Or it's not Jupiter, more likely, yes. So we've got Taurus, Orion, Gemini, Canis Major, all yeah. of those. That's the big, huge thing we get in the winter months. And as yeah. I say, we're, so we're blessed, because in the summer of the hemisphere, they get them for far less time, because, of course, they get them in the summer months when you've got less hours of darkness. What is the moon up to at the moment? Oh, the moon's doing great at the moment. The moon is new again on the 13th of December, which is great for us because that gives us the um, chance to see the Geminid meteors with no moonlight interfering. Just the, the last few months, we've had this wonderful um, period of where the full moon seems to be at the beginning of the month and the new moon in the middle of the month. It's just the way the, the clock falls because, of course, there's 13 full moons in a year. But So the moon is coming round again. It was, we had the eclipse um, a few weeks ago now. We talked about that in the last programme. Uh, eclipses always, of the moon always take place when it's a full moon. Eclipses of the sun always take place when it's a new moon. The, the logistics of that is quite simple to understand. We won't go into that now. We'll do that when we're talking about eclipses in April. We're going to be talking about eclipses in April. Um, but the moon is a huge... Lovely to look at, but of course it's a huge source of light pollution as well. And so when we look for one of the better meteor showers of the year, and there's two, I've always said this, there's two great meteor showers in the year, the Perseids in August and the Geminids in December. The Geminids peak on the 12th, and guess what? We've got a new moon on the 13th. So great chance for stargazing, great chance for looking for meteors, which come from the constellation of Gemini, one of the aforementioned winter constellations we just spoke about. Um, so around midnight time, look towards the east. And I guarantee, I, I always guarantee, and I've never failed yet, if it's clear and you go outside and get your eyes used to the dark, give yourself at least 10 minutes to get your eyes tuned to the dark and look for about 20 minutes, half an hour, you will see at least one, probably dozens of Geminid meteors. Just that key thing, just well, well, actually, of equal importance, you've got to have the right conditions, right weather conditions, clear skies. Indeed. And you cannot overemphasize this getting your eyes acclimatized yeah. to the dark. Yeah, every time, I mean, if you don't believe me on that one, next time you're in a darkened room or you're in bed at night time and your wife, husband, whatever, decides to put the light on and you're not ready for it, you blink, you're, oh, wow, that light is far too bright. It's not too bright. It's your pupils of your eye. In the darkness, your pupil is bigger. In the in the, uh, the light, it dilates, and it's exactly the same at night time. If you've got no lights around, your, your pupil will get bigger and bigger, and you'll get more area to see the different things. Once you put lights on or something else, um, you'll kill your night sight. A few weeks ago, I gave a talk at the Craig Nabar Hotel for the um, Roy Castle um, Lung Foundation, and believe it or not, Judith, it was clear. We came out and it was clear. 
and we went to the back of the hotel there, and there's quite a good spot where there's no lights and everything. And we were pointing, I was pointing all sorts of things out to them. They really enjoyed it. A couple of cars came along the Craig Navarre back road, and I did something I don't normally do. I said, don't worry about it, just close your eyes. Stand still, close your eyes. And of course, you see the car go past because the, the light from the car lights are sufficient to go through your eyelids, but not as bright as the headlights. So, and someone said to me, well, it works, doesn't it? I says, yes, if you keep looking at the headlights coming towards you, you'll lose your night sight. Just turn your head or close your eyes and you'll keep your night sight. But please, listeners, if you're going to close your eyes or you're going to do anything like that, please stand still. Don't start carry on walking because you're going to fall over. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I put my hand up to that one, Howard, because, I, you know, I, I love walking and now I'm most always always walking in the dark now. And if the cars are coming, if a car comes towards me, I, I turn away, but I stop first. Just, Otherwise, I would be in the hedge. Uh, exactly. And that's not a good idea. It isn't. Definitely not a good idea. <laughs> not at my age. Right. OK. The Star of Bethlehem. Here we are, the end of November, but yeah. come come December, a few weeks' time. We'll all be talking about it. And, of course, I've got the brilliant uh, visual aid at the moment because I've got Jupiter in the evening sky and I've got Venus in the morning sky. And there's all sorts of speculation. Now, we'll be doing my talk on the Star of Bethlehem. Maybe we'll talk about it a bit later on. I'm doing it a couple of places this year. Uh, I always save this talk up of what was the Star of Bethlehem and would it have been seen from the Isle of Man? And uh, it would. Um, but basically, um, this is the, the, the tale that we, we, we talk about every year because there was something dramatic seen in the sky. We know Jesus was born at the time of the turn of the 0 BC, uh, AD, whatever you want to call it. Um, we actually think it was about 4 BC now, but never mind. And um, so through astronomical research, through scientific research, we look for features in the sky that could have explained why people looked up at the sky and saw something different and something new and the the most popular theory and the one i i um, talk about the most is it was a planetary conjunction between the two planets jupiter and saturn which incidentally are both visible in our sky at the moment they're a long way from each other but about four or five years ago they were very close to each other and what happened in the period around the the birth of jesus uh, these two came together three times in quick succession and that's what it says in the bible the evening star grew brighter and all this sort of stuff about the um it went before them and all this sort of stuff. You can look up in um, the Bible in um, Luke, I think it is, isn't it? And it'll give you the tale. But um, it's a story that's great and people love hearing about it. And um, I've done this talk now for about 10 years. It changes because obviously new discoveries and new ideas come along. And indeed, the way you do the presentations changes. You can get far better graphics now than you could 10 years ago. But it's a wonderful tale. And yes, the answer to the question, the, unanswer the unasked question is, would it have been seen from the Isle of Man? Almost certainly. And it must have been something unusual, strange, because these men who followed the star, it we call them wise men, but it is generally believed that they would have been astronomers or astrologers, astrologers of their yeah. time that that would and would have seen something strange. They were knowledgeable enough yeah. to know that what they were seeing was, was very unusual. Well, this triple conjunction you get only occurs every 900 years. So for that to take place, and what we think now, there's a series of events took place which culminated in them coming across a baby lying in a barn, and it was, of course, the baby Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to tell us when you're giving that talk, because if we leave it to the end of the programme, we'll get engrossed in our space news, and we won't have time. I'll be okay. I'll be rushing you along. Okay. So, so if people want to come and listen to your talk, where do they need well, to be? Well, I'm doing it twice. I'm doing it on the 8th of December at the Timwald Hill Inn, 
A Taste of Italy at the Tumult Hill Inn on the 8th of December, but I'm also going to be doing it again at the Sound on the Friday the 5th of January. I've deliberately spaced them both apart so different people can see at different places. Um, I've done a number of talks at both the Sound and at Tumult uh, Hill um, over the last few years now, and they've always been very popular. So if you're interested and you'd like to know what the Manx star of the Manx Christmas star was, uh, that'll be the subject of my talk at those venues on the Friday the 8th of December or on Friday the 5th of January. And they're bookable, presumably. Book them through the Timwell Hill Inn or through the Sound, uh, respectively. Well, that's nice and straightforward. Right, OK, that seems like a good point to take our music break. The song is great, but when you watch the video of the song, it's a real Christmassy video. I'll protect you from the hooded claw Keep the vampires from your door Feels like fire I'm so in love with you Dreams are like angels They keep bad at bay Bad at bay Love is the light Scaring darkness away I'm so in love with you Purge the soul Make love your
This time we go sublime Lovers entwined, divine, divine Love is danger, love is pleasure Love is pure, the only treasure I'm so in love with you, it's the soul Make love of love frankie goes to hollywood you're listening to the november edition of the manx sky at night and we're back now talking to howard parkin and as usual in part two of the program we head for space we do indeed now just something i want to ask you about india are, are, mm-hmm. are very active i have to confess it wouldn't be the first country that i would be thinking of as as joining in the race for space they're uh, doing it yeah but but they are is there any particular area that they wanted to explore develop are they are they going are they going on their own or are they in cooperation no, in, i think they've got a lot of russian support i think the rocket the uh, the origin of their rockets is russian technology because uh, india's far friendly with russia then until recently, anyway, I don't know what's going on now, but that's another story. Uh, but the Indian space agency, ISRO, ISRO, have been launching to the moon, to Mars, uh, and now they're planning a manned space mission, or sorry, a human, we're not going to call it manned anymore, a, a person mission. Sorry, no, crewed. That's the word. The word now for spaceflight with humans on board is crewed. Crewed, C-R-E-W-E-D, not the other crewed. And they've got their own manned spaceflight program. But of course, Judith... Um, not so long ago, the Isle of Man was ranked as the fifth most likely nation to return to the moon. That was mm. a proper report issued in 2003 by the company called Ascend, who looking at all the investment in the Isle of Man in space. And the four nations ahead of us were America, Russia, China and India. So we are a fifth after India. But our space industry is still very active on a financial point of view, but there's not as much... Uh, exploratory stuff going on and that sort of stuff that's a, a, a different story altogether but I, when I looked that up and I thought to myself when was it we were fifth most likely nation to return to the moon it was 2003 just 20 years ago 
I remember that. We weren't doing this programme, otherwise no. it would have been a hot topic. And maybe it's something that we can return to because it's certain. Why were we fifth? And, and yet uh, we're not still being mentioned. We're no. not talking about what we are doing. Because the UK are basically investing more heavily in space now than we were. We took an opportunity, a very quick answer to your, que- your query. Uh, the Anaman were able to file for slots in equatorial orbit uh, or geostationary orbit over the equator, um, which other countries just weren't interested in doing. So the Anaman was buying licenses and using these licenses. And then every time a, a signal goes up to a satellite in a Manx-owned part of the geostationary orbit, we were getting revenue. And the Anaman government got substantial monies, millions of pounds in revenue from the space industry. Then the UK realised that they were missing an opportunity here and the UK started doing similar work and of course other nations did as well. But we were one of the first to start doing this. And this is all thanks to Chris Stott, who was of course our ambassador for space. I think he still is. And Chris and his Mansat company um, really established the Anaman as a leading uh, light in the space industry and um, we've still got a huge amount of work goes on on the island but it's mainly orbital filing and uh, insurance it's not the exciting stuff about launching things into space with men and women on board it's not getting howard parkin out into no. orbit is it no it's not but um only a few weeks ago when we had the open night of the observatory i did play the craig niche apollo mission to everybody now the craig niche apollo mission I can see we've got an opening here, Judith. I am going to play you the Craig Nish Apollo mission. We're going to broadcast that in the not-too-distant future. Laurie Kermode and the Craig Nish Apollo mission. Yes, I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry to steal your thunder, but I did play that on our local music feature quite a while oh, ago. Um, I was very, very kindly given it by the wonderful John Canine. Right. I could do it. I could recite it for you, word for word from the heart. Could word you? had come down from Ramsell. Things going on in the south. The news was carried by Brideson, best known as Billy the Mouth. I could go on, but I won't. To be continued. Absolutely. I'll do a verse a week. For the a month. for the January for the January edition for the January edition of the Manx Sky at Night, we'll have that. What a good idea. Yes, we will. Right, that's it. I've got you booked. Right, okay. What else is happening? Extended music edition. (laughs) What else has happened? Well, there's a story that I am incredulous about. Words fail me on this one because we have all been led to believe in the last hundred years about the Big Bang. The Big Bang took place and the universe is 13.77 billion years old. Fine. It fits. I've said this the other month. We were talking about theories and hypotheses and science and all the rest. Well... We launched the Hubble, the James Webb Telescope a few Christmases ago, didn't we? It has now discovered some galaxies in the universe that are much bigger and much younger than they should be. Older, sorry, older. They're much bigger, but much older than they ought to be. So how can that be? And one of the scientists says, this just can't happen. This isn't right. There's something wrong. And someone has come up with a hypothesis. And that hypothesis has changed the age of the universe from 13.7 to 25.6 billion years. They've just doubled the age of the universe in one foul swoop from these spectacular images from the James Webb Telescope. Now, it's an embryonic theory at the moment. It's very much in the um, infancy. And it's certainly not changing what I lecture on because my whole lecture is based on the universe being 13.77 billion years. But if it's 25.6, throw the books away and start again. It really is a dramatic discovery. And you first hear of these events in science and you, you you see a paper comes out on it you you sort of half read it you think oh that's interesting but then someone else publishes something else and then it gathers momentum 
and this is in the process. It's only very much an embryonic um, theory at the moment, or hypothesis to be precise. But it's it's got wings, and it's certainly um, it might be the case. And who knows if that does? Well, it won't change things too dramatically. It'll just basically double the age of the universe. I mean, how dramatic is that? But the idea that the universe is expanding from a big bang and it's continue to expand um, would still be the case, I'm guessing. Um, but it's it's just something to throw out there as a wow. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is extraordinary. It's not like a few billion... Oh, no, it's doubled. doubled. 13.7 to 25.6, which is just a fraction under doubled. I couldn't even begin to think what the implications of that might be, no. but it, but it does turn evolution on its head because it, it shows that, that it's taken longer for it's everything to get time to evolve. From, from, from where yeah. it was. I mean, very simplistic. To what I do in one of my lectures is called Stardust, We're Made of Stardust, and I actually split the age of the universe down to a calendar year and we say right the big bang took place at midnight on the 1st of january and it's now the 31st of december the same year and for instance the solar system came into being in august life began on earth at about half past 12 in the afternoon on new year's eve and so you do that well you just double it you have two years and you just halve everything so in a simplistic term it would just double the timing of how long things have been happening but what it does particularly at the business end of the big bang when we hadn't got any light and we hadn't got any atoms and we hadn't got any energy or anything else what they call the period of quantum fluctuation that will now be twice as long and that was meant to be very quick in cosmic terms and now that will be twice as long so the implications as i say are huge and i look forward to reading more about it and talking to you about it on air maybe in a few months time well i was going to say that this this could be a discussion it that could, will go on for it could for, grow for, but the thing and we have to park that because we we've no idea no what the, the implications will be however let's come back to the james webb telescope yeah could you have imagined that this was the kind of no. stuff that we would get Not from a million it. years. I mean, everyone thought that what they were expecting the web to do was discover planets around other stars, discover features in their atmosphere, indicates that life possibly could evolve on those planets. Uh, it's discovered things about the warping of um, light passing through um, over big galaxies and this sort of stuff. Observational stuff that we thought Hubble would uh, increase. But these galaxies, it's discovered, there's two of them. It's not just one, it's two of them it's discovered. And um, just don't fit the parameters for the evolution of the universe. Oops. Isn't, isn't it brilliant? <laughs> Absolutely it, incredible. It, because what it kind of says is, look, down there on Earth, you know nothing. You think you're clever? Yeah. Let me show you. <laughs> you, you. You actually only know a tiny, tiny little yeah. bit. And what you do know, you don't properly understand. No. And every, every now and then someone throws something at us and we go, oh, wow. It does. Make, it really is a, a wow story. Yeah, because it's, it does. And, and it's right that it should make us feel insignificant in the, oh, totally. in the greater scheme of things. Totally. It is, is like I say, we, we talk about Mother Nature. You feel humble when you look at Mother Nature and you yeah. see the veins in leaves or babies' fingernails or planets. You know, you go from one extreme to the other. And this is just another example of it. It's not hit the media yet, the story, properly. It's not been made popular because it's, it's so far-reaching. Uh, but I suspect in the next six, eight months it'll be become more and more but but in common. our first for explanations and answers when something comes up we inevitably say well so go on go on yeah. so i i guess that they've got to try to to develop the story yeah. before it goes yeah, it's, it's, in a big it's, way it's an indian i would talk about indian the indian space agency is an indian i think his name is gupta uh, who's the guy who's come up with this theory that again they, they take all the facts they've got and they try and make everything fit into what we think we know and then add in the new things and he's come up with a hypothesis which is being examined as we speak. 
it well. There is just so much going on. There is indeed. And so much going on also is the passage of time on this programme. And we're almost out. Now, just let's be absolutely specific about when we're going to be together again, because, of course, the final Sunday in December is New Year's Eve. And everything looks very, very different on Manx Radio. There'll be no sundown. In in fact, Ben Hartley will be in the studio doing a fantastic time partying us through from the end of this year into 2024. And so the next edition of the Manx Sky at Night is going to be on Sunday the 7th of January. It is indeed. And so we look forward to welcoming you back into the studio then, Howard. Usual time, half past nine. And you're going to be, I would guess, sort of previewing not just January, but giving yeah. us an idea. We'll do a of, review of the year, what's coming up yeah. in the forthcoming year, 12 months, as a, including an eclipse, which I'll be going to see in America, but we will see a tiny bit of in the Isle of Man. Already wetting our appetite. I'll give you a taster. Howard, as ever, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I uh, wish you and Mrs Parkin a very, very happy Christmas and look forward um, to meeting you next year. I'm the same to you, Judith. The nation stays.